Hello, and a very warm welcome to Thanks for the Knowledge, Fanbytes News and Interview Show, where I, John Warren, explain everything big and small you might have missed in the week of games and entertainment. This week, I sat down with game reporter Jack Yarwood to discuss how communities can transcend games, the shantification of TikTok, and much, much more. Before we get to that, we absolutely have to unpack this week's, this month's, maybe this year's top story. It is unbelievably rare that video game news puts in the work to become nationally and internationally relevant, but this GameStop stock story has so many angles, there's almost no way I could possibly catch you up, but I am going to try. First, let's talk about stock trading. A stock exchange is where people can buy and sell different securities, stock in a company, for example. These companies, if they decide to be publicly traded on these exchanges, offer up individual shares at a certain price. Those prices shift and fluctuate based on trading activity. This trading activity in an ideal capitalist economy, and I'm going to use that phrase a lot even though you know I have my own opinions on capitalism, but I digress. Um, this activity will shift due to changes in the overall health of a company. Conventional wisdom says a person should buy shares of stock when the price is relatively low compared to the stock's average and sell when it is relatively high or even at the predicted zenith of its price. Other transactions besides simple buying and selling of stock have emerged, of course, because why wouldn't they in this kind of society? A very important alternative transaction is called a short option, which I tried to explain three times in my own words and then deleted all that and decided to simply read James Chen and Gordon Scott's version from Investopedia, which I think sums it up nicely. Okay, are you ready? Quote, Short selling is an investment or trading strategy that speculates on the decline of a stock or other securities price. It is an advanced strategy that should only be undertaken by experienced traders and investors. <clears throat> traders may use short selling as speculation and investors or portfolio managers may use it as a hedge against the downside risk of a long position in the same security or a related one. Speculation carries the possibility of substantial risk and is an advanced trading method. Hedging is a more common transaction involving placing an offsetting position to reduce risk exposure. In short selling, a position is opened by borrowing shares of stock or other asset that the investor believes will decrease in value by a set future date, the expiration date. The investor then sells these borrowed shares to buyers willing to pay the market price. Before the borrowed shares must be returned, the trader is betting that the price will continue to decline and they can purchase them at a lower cost. The risk of loss on a short sale is theoretically unlimited since the price of any asset can climb to infinity. End quote. Hey, thanks, fellas. I have an MBA, but clearly coasted through the parts about equity securities, so I appreciate it. That last part, by the way, about uh, the risk of loss being theoretically unlimited is fairly important, so remember that. Uh, all you need to understand is that short selling is essentially a side bet on a security losing its value within a certain time frame. Keep all of that in mind, okay? Just sit on that for a second. I'm going to remind you what GameStop has been up to. The games retailers started their public offering in 2002 at just under $10 per share. IPOs are typically a, a place where the stock price is expected to be high because there's a lot of excitement about 
the first purchase. The company has obviously had ups and downs since then, moving away from their majority ownership parent company, Barnes & Noble, remember that, in favor of independence, where they enjoyed years of retail supremacy and padded their bottom line with, con uh, with consumer antagonistic trade-in prices for used games. With the advent of digital distribution and players beginning to understand the models with which GameStop clawed their foothold onto the market, GameStop upped their aggressive training policies by having workers push all products and services that were most margin positive, even if these services had nothing to do with the transaction at hand. These in-store sales techniques have impacted the conversation around GameStop for years, from being the best place to buy games to the place folks buy games if they're in a pinch or in a rural area. Digital sales of games have seen nothing but major increases for the past decade, and GameStop was glacially slow in catching up with the time. Still, even as layoffs and store closures have dotted the recent past of the former retail giant, the company seems to be committed to trying new things to salvage the operation. In 2019, GameStop unveiled a plan to turn their retail locations into something resembling mom-and-pop hobby shops instead of the crowded shelved strip mall filler to which we've grown accustomed. The same year, however, GameStop laid off over 120 of their workers, including the bulk of Game Informer, the physical and digital magazine bundled with the store's loyalty program. 2020 was a banner year for GameStop, but mostly for bad reasons. GameStop's response to the COVID-19 pand uh, COVID pandemic has been reported multiple times on current and former iterations of this very show. But as a reminder, the response is mostly bad. GameStop declared itself an essential business as the United States allowed the virus to spread mostly unchecked on a federal and state level. Although many in-store events were canceled and dis distancing measures were put into place, these measures were reportedly not enforced most of the time, and extra cleaning supplies required to keep stores relatively safe during the pandemic were not provided in several locations, including the Bay Area in San Francisco. In October 2020, GameStop shifted all internal backend processes and services to Microsoft 365 services, which included an agreement where a portion of Xbox Series S and X digital game sales through GameStop would remain with the retailer. This move was followed by an increase in their stock price, up to $13 per share, after seeing their 52-week low dip all the way down into the low single digits, about $2.50 a share. Remember what I said about an ideal capitalist economy? Uh, the retailer makes a move and gives shareholders a reason to feel confident so the price goes up? That makes sense, right? Okay. Well, the subreddit Wall Street Bets, under some guidance from longtime user Keith Gill, aka Deep Fucking Value, excuse my French, aka Roaring Kitty, pegged GameStop as being a prime short squeeze candidate in early January. A short squeeze, so you know, is essentially the mass inflation of a stock due to factors other than company performance. Keith Gill, for his part, invested $53,000 in call options back in 2019 because he says he felt the stock was undervalued at the time. Other users on the Wall Street Bets subreddit began to buy shares of GameStop in mass, driving up the cost of the stock to $20 by January 11th and up to over $40 just 10 days later. The most recent days of the past week have been the wildest, however, with the price of GameStop stock going to $147 on Monday and ending at $325 per share on Friday afternoon at the close of trading for the week. Its peak was $483 per share during extended trading hours earlier in the week. 
Uh, Keith Gill's position, by the way, is now worth millions and millions of dollars. This all happened just days after Elon Musk tweeted about the stock, adding to the short squeeze's intensity. Other legacy retailers and struggling companies like AMC Theaters, BlackBerry, and Nokia also experienced large jumps in stock prices during this period. Robinhood, a popular stock trading app at the center of the event, actually halted transactions of GameStop, AMC, and BlackBerry stocks this week, which has been met with widespread criticism from all over the political spectrum, noting that in a quote-unquote free market, this kind of limitation on trading only protects the wealthy who took massive losses from shorting the stocks in the first place. Hedge funds, which often use huge piles of cash to short stocks, were among the biggest losers from the past few weeks, most notably Melvin Capital, which had to raise billions in investor funds just to cover the losses from their position. Large funds also won this week, however, so no matter how much some publications will frame this as Reddit edgelords taking on the billionaire class, billionaires also gained plenty of capital from this event. Uh, GameStop executives were among the largest earners of the week, with CEO George Sherman becoming a billionaire briefly before his position moved back down to just... Haha. <laughs> 901 million dollars this is still a developing story with many moving parts and although this the rise of the gamestop stock may not continue past this week although it could investigations will be sure to follow as to the nature of the short squeeze and certainly uh, an investigation into the restriction of transactions the robin hood app enacted One of the uh, great joys uh, for me, having overseen a lot of what Fanbyte does over the past couple of years, is seeing some really interesting reporting of game communities, how they can sometimes transcend the game themselves, how they develop their problems, their triumphs, and everything in between. Uh, one of the very best in the biz at covering this uh, is Jack Yarwood, who joins me now. He has bylines at Gamasutra, GamesRadar, uh, Eurogamer, PC Gamer, and of course, Fanbyte.com. Hi, Jack. How are you? Hi, I'm I'm good. Yeah, how are you? Uh, you know what? I'm doing okay. It is a Thursday morning here. Um, my coffee is beginning to kick in, so I feel pretty good. Um, and you're winding down your day, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 calming down now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, one of one of my favorite games that you cover, and it you know these these interviews don't normally have to be super timely, but like we've stumbled onto something really interesting here. Uh, one of my favorite games that you cover is Sea of Thieves, and there is some developing stuff going on today, uh, and I would love it if you would uh, kind of tell me about it. We can go from there. Cool. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, it, there's been a new update today um, for Sea of Thieves, and People kind of recognized uh, going on to Twitter today that a lot of people were getting banned and there was kind of a lot of confusion about, you know, why they were getting banned. And it seemed to like affect like an, a, a major part of the uh, the Twitter community. And it's it's kind of tied to, um, or at least from um, sort of like some investigation into it, it's tied to people having a, a person log into um, their Sea of Thieves account and basically unlock the uh the xbox series x kind of like exclusive set that they released and mm -hmm. uh yeah and just today it seems like uh that's that's kind of the common thread between all these accounts getting banned and um <laughs> yeah and and it's just uh 
it's just kind of been the talking point, I guess, on Twitter. A lot of people kind of uh, confused about what's going on, kind of wondering whether it's a bug, like not really knowing, because um, I guess the big thing with Sea of Thieves is when you get banned, you don't really get a reason. You just get a Redbeard error that sort of says you can't log into your account anymore. So it seems to be, I guess, a lot of confusion there and people trying to piece together. But that's the common thread, I think, that people put together, that there was kind of one person who did it for a major like part of the Twitter community. Weird. So uh, Rare hasn't really made a, a big response to this stuff yet, or, or have they have they said anything about what's going on? Um, essentially, I think it's, it's, they have like these res kind of community management kind of has these people who kind of volunteer on lower levels, kind of like, uh, people, um, trying to think of the correct name because there's boatswains and there's deckhands. And one of them is (laughs) uh, a group of people who kind of just monitor the, the forums and kind of do like, um, some of the work there and, a lot of those people are kind of coming into people's uh, responses and just going, you know, check it out um, and file a message to kind of support and just see whether you can get it overturned. And it seems now that a lot of these accounts are getting overturned and, you know, these bans are getting overturned because the way Sea of Thieves tends to do it is it tends to be a ban wave and mm. there's a lot of confusion after that. But um, yeah, today's just kind of been really bizarre because obviously it's a new update day. So people have been like kind of, setting up to stream and then realizing that they can't actually access the game. It's, it's just been kind of really bizarre. That is strange. Um, would you say that the Sea of Thieves community stuff has been, you know, that the way Rare has handled that community, um, you, you alluded to the fact that they sometimes do these big waves of bands and then kind of ask questions later. Is that a, is that a common way to deal with, uh, communities like Sea of Thieves is, or is Rare kind of a, a different, um, do they have a different approach than other communities you've seen? Uh, the, I think it's the, the kind of, I think that's kind of normal in a way for community managers mm-hmm. and, and the people who kind of handle, um, kind of, uh, bans for these kind of big live service games to kind of, uh, they, they tend to wait and they tend to kind of package up as many kind of bands together to sort of push them through. Um, mm-hmm. at, at least that's what I've heard from the community managers, um, at different studios I've spoken to in the past um, while reporting. But uh, I think um, Sea of Thieves, what I think a lot of people kind of um, have kind of issues with or, or kind of um, references the fact that I guess that there there is kind of this slang kind of involved with it. You know, people get uh, different error codes for different reasons. So uh, Redbeard is obviously for the the bands, but then there's kind of like there's Strawberry Beard and there's these different like things to <laughs> sort of say. And um, yeah, why why people can't log in. So it could be like a bug. It could be, you know, like a bad connection or something. And um, yeah, and it, it just feels like, I guess a, a lot of the feedback that I've been hearing from the community um, in terms of, I guess, stuff like harassment and the... Uh, in the Sea of Thieves community is, is, is stuff like there needs to be kind of a stronger feedback there. And it's, right. yeah, like kind of what uh, aspects of the terms of service have they actually like violated in a way and to get a ban. And that's kind of the problem with today is that everyone's sort of got these bans. And I think the, the immediate thought was it's a bug or someone has used a name similar to mine and, it's been banned by mistake or something like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Um, I, I guess um, one of my questions about Sea of Thieves, I mean, this is a game that I uh, dipped into when it first launched and have kind of have sunk back into it every once in a while, uh, like on stream with fanby folks or just kind of in our downtime. And it's been one of those games that has evolved in a really interesting way. Uh, how much do you how, how much would you say that the community and how um, how much feedback that they've given rare? Would you say that that they've made a lot of their gameplay decisions based on community feedback since since launching? I think they have. Yeah, I think uh, to begin with, at least the first two years, they were really sort of reactive to the community and, and kind of things that I guess even like bugs that the uh, the community liked were kept into the game. Um, there's a big kind of exploit that you can do in the game that um, basically includes a sword launch that you can do like this specialized jump that with the sword that basically is completely unrealistic and was a bug, but the community seemed to like it, so they kept it in. And I think after launch as well, the forums were a big place where people were like, we need more kind of... Uh, enemy threats in the world other than the Kraken and that kind of led to I guess the first update that they did which was the Hungering Deep which added like the the Megalodons into the world yeah which uh I I've encountered once and it was uh it was uh really effective and terrifying um (laughs) one of uh why don't you tell me maybe one or two of the things about this community that you've really um that have really kind of captured your attention over the past few years. Like what there, there's been things with fashion and things with uh, just a lot of, a lot of trolling and, and it's just kind of weird stuff. Like what, what are some notable um, events for you? I think the, the big thing that interests me about like game communities in general tend to be the fact that there, there's a lot of hype leading up to game releases. And it's really interesting when you see a game come out and, I guess, massive Twitch streamers, you know, kind of abandon the game in a way. And the the sentiment around the game in mainstream gaming spaces is stuff like for Thieves, for instance, it was, uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's as wide as an ocean, as deep as a puddle. It's, you know, it's got no, no <laughs> content. And that seems to be a thing that really followed the game for the first year. But the um, it, it's interesting with that stuff because... It ends up creating these really niche online communities. Like um, when the game first started, uh, people pretty much on Twitter and Facebook knew each other. So they established like pirate unions, and they had like um, <laughs> like school ball, uh, school ball, which was their own like sport inside Sea of Thieves. Then people started their own racing leagues in like Sea of Thieves, and. It was those type of stories that sort of interested me because it was people sort of being told they shouldn't like this thing and, you know, it's terrible. You know, we all think the same and they sort of went off and did their own thing with it and kind of had fun with it anyway because it's it's kind of a chill place to sort of hang out and stuff. And, yeah, um, yeah and I, I was interested in Sea Thieves in particular because I stuck with the game and pretty much mm-hmm. every night I'd be playing with strangers. So it would be like me in England playing with someone from like India and someone from like America. And you, you just, there's a lot of downtime in that game. So you just spend time talking to people and getting to know people from like all over the world. And I I think 
I, I, I haven't really had that experience in many games other than Sea of Thieves. It's actually kind of an astonishing point that I hadn't really considered. I've, I've played this game with uh, mostly just people that I see and talk to every single day. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are, you know, in, in the realm of these kind of online games, um, you know, maybe with the exception of something like Minecraft, I don't I can't immediately think of a game that has more kind of chill in between action moments as Sea of Thieves. So you're saying that that's like actually a really great opportunity to have conversations with folks. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, there's been times, I, th- I think as well, like there's something that I, I don't think I've ever like sort of talked about this, but there's kind of just the, the level of progression in Sea of Thieves. The fact that you can join a, a random group of strangers and you can sort of throughout a session you kind of find a rhythm of like how to communicate with different people and different groups yeah. have different challenges to overcome. I've I've been in groups with like fairly aggressive players, but we've also had someone who's very, very young on our, our group. And, mm. you know, it's like telling the aggressive player to mute the younger player and then act as a go-between <laughs> between them. So, you know, the younger player isn't exposed to someone, I guess, you might put them off playing and, and things like that. It's like navigating kind of that kind of dynamic between people is just very interesting. And obviously that can be a bad thing as well, but it's very sure. interesting when it comes out good and you, you know, you've played for maybe three or four hours with a group of strangers who now want to play again. And, you know, they, you establish like these kind of friendships, I guess, with people who you just didn't know before. Yeah, um, I am over on fanbyte.com right now, and I'm looking at an article dated April 27th, 2020 headline reading me uh, the headline reading meet the sea shanty singing sailors of Sea of Thieves. Um, Jack, I feel like you have uh, been way ahead of the curve on the shantification of TikTok and things like that that we've seen pop up lately. Obviously shanties have been like a really big part of uh, like seafaring lore. And obviously that was a day one part of uh, sea of thieves, sea of thieves gameplay loop. But like how, how, <laughs> how much do you attribute kind of sea of thieves is uh, shanty stuff? You know, you've been covering this for a long time to the cultural moment we've seen over the past few months of shanties kind of making a comeback on Twitter. I think in a way, I, th- I think the the longest chance who were the group that I actually spoke to, um, who are the group who kind of sail the seas to kind of stream them singing yeah. to random crews. I think uh, the Sea of Thieves community definitely helped them sort of get sort of renowned because every, every time shanties came up in the kind of, you know, days following, I guess, it going viral on TikTok that people uh-huh. were making these kind of TikToks include shanties. Everyone was linking to lo- the Longest John's music and, you know, sort of saying, you know, this group, you know, they play in Sea of Thieves and a lot of those people who were sort of advocating for them were people that they sort of, I guess, made a community with uh, inside the game. And yeah, I- I'm surprised, <laughs> I guess, looking back, because at the time I remember like pitching that article to Van Byte and being a bit like, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe it's a bit too niche. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, now I'm, I'm sort of looking at it like, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, uh, the, the cultural moment that we're having made me go, 
oh yeah, J- J- Jack wrote about this. And I went back and I was like, okay, I guess that must have been like, you know, three months ago or something. And no, it was it was almost 10 months ago at this point. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's just, it's so funny to see the way um, these communities can sometimes very, very, very uh, under the radar, perhaps kind of influence a lot of what's going on um, yeah. outside of it, which is bizarre and very cool to see actually. Um, a game that you've also covered and, and uh, I'll, I'll, start with the question of how are you still actually playing it It is fallout 76 do you still do you still keep up with that community at all it's more that i keep up with the community rather than playing i guess at the moment um because live service games um there's something that um a lot of people who tend to cover these types of communities mention like i know uh uh, gita jackson over at uh, uh, vice and uh, Patricia Hernandez at um, Polygon, they they sort of mentioned that, I guess you're always sort of treated as an outsider, I guess, covering communities because you right. you kind of um, in, in, a, in a way like you can't be a master of all of these communities because they, they, they have like these games like require so much time put into them to sort of cover them in depth and um mm-hmm. And at the moment, at least, I'm kind. Of, I kind of feel like a tourist, I guess, like with Fallout right. seventy six in in terms of covering that community. Um, it it's certainly one of those games that you know. I think I think Sea of Thieves as a as a, a video game as as an experience community aside um, has a lot of compelling elements to me, and that this is total. Uh, editorializing on my part but fallout 76 never really was a fun game for me i i i played it for a little while when it came out i thought it was pretty broken i thought it was (laughs) pretty empty i thought it was not that fascinating of a game to play it was not really the kind of fallout experience i wanted but i have lived somewhat vicariously through your reporting uh, looking into this community and seeing a window into a space that I didn't see at all, which yeah. I think is really fascinating. Um, t- let's talk about some of these. You, you've covered um, a, a group of people that had an underground fighting club. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, there's um, a person called Shredder who um, I'd actually before that covered previously because there's a lot of, I guess, when you unlock camp mechanics in um, Fallout seventy six, it's kind of like you you you're kind of given the task of rebuilding a wasteland. But it was funny because I noticed most players were just building bars, and uh, <laughs> Shredder was one of the people who kind of had their own bar called the Algato um, the Algato Pub, um, mm-hmm. and they sort of started that because I think in real life they actually had wanted to buy a pub like previously, and they just thought well, it's something interesting, I'll do that. And that's kind of where the fighting aspect came from when I ended up interviewing them later when they started putting these on because they sort of thought of it kind of like an Irish kind of bar atmosphere. You know, what what did he do there to like kind of uh, pass the time? And it was like, well, you know, like you can have like, you know, boxing ring in the center of the bar and you can sort of have fights. And it slowly got more professional in kind of the production value and um, the things that they're doing. Um, and that's kind of helped along, I guess, by how the game's kind of updating to sort of help them do that. Um, but I know for that piece in particular, it was crazy because 
I got on a call to interview them and more and more of the fighters were coming into the chat and like calling each other out while I was trying to like conduct like a serious interview with like the organizer and like just like picking fights and and things like that it's 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 great because it's it's still going on now um and they've recently they've recently sort of had um their like grand finals i think for that and it's it's stuff like that wow. that i like sort of continuously following because there's kind of like developing stories with them did yeah, i did i actually that's... answer your question there i probably went oh, on like you, a big no, you, tangent no, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you know you've you, you've 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 still caught, kept up with the community but you you touched on an aspect of it that you know before i asked about some of these other elements you kind of hinted at being treated like an outsider are communities or are some communities you cover more um, uh, uh, forthcoming than others you've covered? And, and what do you think the reason for those differences might be? Uh, I think a lot of the personally for me, the things that interest me are the communities that basically are a bit, I guess, unfashionable in a way like Fallout 76. Mm-hmm. I, had to guide that game when it first came out and I didn't particularly enjoy the experience and it didn't <laughs> p- particularly enjoy my PC. It was like, <laughs> it, it yeah. didn't, it kind of looked like an impressionist painting when I was trying to play it. But um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I think those types of communities are what interest me because like I slowly started following accounts and like people who were role-playing in the game because I was a massive fan of the Fallout 4 kind of building community and the people who use like mods to make these really realistic environments, but they also created like storytelling around them and kind of created like background for their characters. And it was through that that I sort of like decided to revisit the game and sort of look at it through a different angle and kind of do those things, I guess, where it was like, oh yeah, I'm going to create like my own sort of background for my character and stuff. And it's uh, it's interesting because um, Holly um, Holly Green um, is currently doing something uh, that's quite involved with the Fallout seventy six community. That's really really interesting. I I recently retweeted it and <laughs> I I'm just pulling up my Twitter now very quickly <laughs> to sort of mention it. But she um, she's actually started the new Charleston Herald inside um, like her PS four save for the game, uh, and she's yeah. kind of collaborating with her. Uh, a Fallout roleplay group to sort of build her own sort of like interactive um, newspaper inside Fallout 76. So it's it's stuff like that that's just I find fascinating about Fallout 76 as a game. And it still gets those people, I guess, saying, you know, oh, this is a broken game. This is like completely terrible. And, you know, we want Fallout 5 and, and stuff like that. But there is so many kind of interesting like communities inside it and people doing like, fascinating things with events especially that's really cool uh yeah you mentioned the uh the uh uh the holly green thing uh we may have something on uh fanbyte.com about that soon so that's very interesting um yeah i i've seen bits of this that are going on and it's super super fascinating as just like i i don't i don't know how to frame it without making it seem like the the devs are doing something kind of weird but it's like you know if if the devs aren't going to make fallout 76 this kind of archived 
uh, narrative focused thing. It's super fascinating to see these narrative accounts pop up, you know, and and kind of chronicling the history and the goings on of these communities in the in these games, um, even when the devs like aren't particularly interested in supporting it in that specific way, which like is probably a choice, you know, mostly of of allocating resources to certain things um and not others but like i think it's really cool when the community um takes that stuff upon itself so um some other things that that have happened this is one of an older one but a a murder mystery that happened in uh fallout 76 like a murder mystery night which uh only comes on my radar because uh hitman 3 just put basically a knives out mission in uh in its game so (laughs) that reminded me like uh, those kind of it's almost like the fight club thing i have to imagine these kind of like uh (laughs) conscious like fake existence within a fake existence thing yeah um yeah, maybe talk a little bit about the murder mystery stuff that you you covered. Yeah, that was um, Fallout Frosty, um, who came across my radar because they they that big thing is uh, with the Wasteland Game Network. They put on kind of game shows inside, so it's like stuff like Wasteland Feud, which is our version of Family Feud, and through I guess following people in the community, I, it kind of came across my radar that there were kind of these people doing this kind of really interesting um yeah murder mystery night kind of like uh clue and it's it's one of those things where i guess it's it's interesting because i'm always on like a time difference as well so people are like we're going live and then they'll go live you know at like 2 a.m or something i'm like oh yeah i'll I'll catch the vod on that like (laughs) and then yeah like uh, for that one that was kind of i guess (laughs) It, it, it was interesting just seeing how people kind of created their own kind of rule sets and used kind of right. mechanics that weren't intended to be used in in, in particular ways to, to do stuff like that. And it's interesting yeah. between that and um, the the catfight nights at the, the Algao, which were the, was the fight, fight club, how I guess the intended experience kind of butts head with, with those kind of things. Like um, right. the... Um, for instance, the Wasteland um, Clue Night basically had like I think it was a scorch scorch beast like flew overhead and was like trying to sort of like <laughs> start a fight with them all while they were like trying to actually put on this event. But then the Elgato uh, Catfight Night, there was like players who were trying grief them because of the private servers didn't have enough um, kind of spaces on to to have like a crowd at the time. I, I still don't think they are so. They had to do it on a public server and obviously people come across them, see that they're doing this really organized event with a ring with um, kind of like a crowd and and just kind of try and get in the way of that, I think. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting like to see with those kind of events how it's often against kind of the restrictions of the game. And it's always fascinating to see how kind of the small small things in the updates that are intended for those communities. And I know right. um, Pete Hines, for instance, is very sort of active in terms of uh, visiting those kind of um, groups and partaking in the events and doing kind of like role play and being in attendance at catfight nights and, and stuff like that. So they definitely are aware of that stuff, right. but it's usually kind of um, a footnote, I guess, in the updates. And it's only really to the people who've kind of followed the community that realize 
um, kind of when they're kind of thrown a bone, I guess, uh, to to kind of um, yeah, kind of do yeah. the um, the stuff in a very uh, specific way that they want to kind of um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you get the sense that that Fallout seventy six will basically go as far as the communities go? Uh, in in what sense? I guess in the sense of like support, right? Like because I the, there aren't the concurrence of that game aren't you know changing any <laughs> changing the industry. Like you know it's 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 almost at this point uh, maybe not a niche game, but it's close to me. It's it's teetering yeah. on that edge of is this really going to get support uh, much longer? And and I'm just curious about how how I much think- you think a vibrant community kind of takes that. I think in a way it's hard to know because I think one of the biggest things that they did recently was bring it to Xbox Game Pass because I think right. like Sea of Thieves and I think Destiny 2 is also on there now. Um, yes, it's, they are. It's, it's kind of, those are the kind of people that you want to kind of populate that world, like people who sort of kind of dive into it on a whim and sort of get wrapped up in, in that stuff. And I think they're, they're the kind of, there probably is kind of a large player population, but it's probably a fairly detached one. Um, whereas there's probably this really niche community there as well, who are the more like engaged people. They're the ones who are like commenting on stuff and on Twitter and kind of requesting like uh, specific kind of mechanics that are very sort of like tailored towards how they want to play. Um, Cause that's, I think what CFEs was like, um, it, for a long time it was a very niche community who were active on kind of like social media and stuff and kind of communicating with the, the developers but i feel like there was a very detached audience who kept kind of coming back to the game with each update and trying to sort of get on board with the game and you know sometimes they failed and like went away but that's that's kind of how that's kind of the weird things about these live service games because you can have like these two audiences i guess at the same time right yeah uh, again, uh, you are a writer and a reporter and not a community manager, so I am putting you on the spot, and I apologize for that. But uh, <laughs> you wrote recently about uh, Dreams for Kotaku, which is a uh, obviously the the basically the the uh, game engine as a game, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's basically taking the media molecule creation suite from little big planet. It blew it up into a bunch of really interesting pieces that do a lot more things and basically just relies on uh, community creation. You noted how the lack of unique players in that space is hurting that game's uh, chances of really sticking around much longer. What, what does a game like that have to do to attract a more, uh, vibrant community do you think i think um the kind of it, it comes down to basically removing obstacles i guess for for mm. more casual players because i think at the moment there is kind of and it, and it's kind of talking to the community um for dreams and like members of the community do like stuff like curation and things like that it's a lot of them sort of realize how difficult a task Media Molecule have kind of accepted upon themselves by doing a game like this because a lot of them have right. come from other sort of creation engine games like Little Big Planet and um, Project Spark and, and things like that, and they've seen kind of how these these communities tend to be weighted towards creators and they don't tend to break the mainstream in a way. And um, 
yeah it's 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 kind of hard to say what they can do um except that it's it's interesting while reporting on that to see how the really weird kind of relationship that dreams has with kind of other social media like youtube and twitter like the fact that mm. i can go on twitter and i can see someone from the creative community posting this amazing creation and i can like it and i can retweet it but i can maybe not go in the game and maybe not be one of those people, you know, who counts towards, you know, is this game being played? Um, is, is this creation being liked? Is, it, is this creation being engaged with? And I feel like that's like a really interesting thing that I'd love to sort of hear more from Media Molecule about. Like, are they looking at the Dreamiverse like a social media platform as well as like as an engine? And are they kind of, I guess learning how to make that more appealing to I guess those more casual players and like um those players who will kind of think and it, it, it's interesting as well talking to people the amount of creators I spoke to who said I don't play other people's creations because I'm too busy creating and yeah. uh, that feedback also came from uh, Lady Lex who is a creation like a person who puts together like a a weekly sort of like summary of the best things that like have been created in the dreamiverse and she was saying the same thing that like she's spoken to like creators and they say they don't play other people's dreams but they create in it and it's that kind of thing that makes you kind of worried because you're like well who's the audience that are going to be engaging with this like amazing <laughs> stuff that's been created if it's locked to this platform that people don't really want to engage with yeah it's it's kind of a bizarre um you know, as we're talking about it, it's kind of a bizarre premise, really, to, like, package as a $60 thing, right? Like, I think it'd be like if Unity was, like, <laughs> I don't know, packaging itself as something that absolutely had to sell $60 units, you know, and sell a million of them and have this vibrant community where it's like, yeah, like, this is a, this is the game developer's dilemma. And that's, I guess, how I look at it is that when I was a, when I was a game dev... I didn't have a whole lot of time to play other people's games. Like that's like a really common refrain. I mean, I think people who have a healthy work work life balance find the time to do that stuff. But a lot of my peers and myself, we we really didn't. So it's interesting to see that these dreams creators, um, not to say anything about how these people are not compensated at all, which is like a whole other can yeah. of worms. Um but yeah, that's a really fascinating idea. You have to build this thing, but it's kind of impenetrable because it's essentially a game development tool. Um, it's it's such an interesting thing, and I think you really touched on something interesting with how easy it is to share these things on social media, and it has had quite possibly the opposite effect on me personally. It has not intrigued me to go into dreams and try things what it has done it has shown me kind of the limits of this imagination and probably told me that i'm never ever going to reach those heights without applying a lot of discipline and time to this yeah so I it's kind of this like weird thing right i think the, the fascinating thing as well is when media molecule were originally showing the game off they made a big point to sort of talk about how uh, you can kind of create stuff, but if you make a mistake, just turn it into something else, you know, kind of use it as kind of like a doodle thing where you yeah. can always like keep adding to it and kind kind of chip away at it and make this, this new thing from a mistake. And I think in a way that's something that's 
that they kind of wanted, I guess, like people to make these smaller creations that they could kind of upload. Right. And um, I think because people got so excited about the concept of being able to create these kind of realistic environments and these kind of like amazing in-depth game experiences that tie together different like rooms and kind of have these sci-fi games and stuff, they then get like these game dev length kind of production cycles. And it's, it's something that I guess they didn't really encourage people to do it, but they kind of left the possibility there for people to do it. And that, that in a way as well kind of affects like um, the expectation that those creators have when they then upload to the, to, to the Dreamverse. Like I put so much time into this, you know, I've got to get people to sort of respond to it in the game and, you know, have like, right. uh, you know, like like it and stuff, but then they post it on Twitter and it becomes like fifty thousand like news articles, and it kind <laughs> right. of eats into kind of yeah, it eats into kind of the the kind of interest in the actual platform, um, yeah. Which is really, it's just I think talking about dreams is really complicated because it just those types of of games just seem to be so hard to like market to like kind of like like actually form like an idea of where you want to take it and stuff and it's it's not something that i i really like i don't think anyone on kind of the the media side can realize kind of how much of a challenge that is um so it's like i completely respect uh media molecule and what they're trying to do with it i know they're like hiring more curators and they're doing these different things to try and i guess make it more um more kind of approachable for casual players they've recently changed the dreamverse interface to sort of um to have these genres so you aren't getting kind of these meme creations that were kind of dominating the front page i know i went on there and there was like a a shrek game where someone basically shrek chases (laughs) you and i was like oh this is you know it's it's like a you know it's infringing on someone's copyright but um it's a bit fun. And then when Shrek caught me, it was just like a person screaming into their microphone. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. But it's like those type of things were dominating the front page. And I guess they're not so much now, which is like progress in a yeah. way. But they, they've kind of it, just from the, the genre of the game and what they're trying to do with it, they have such a big challenge with it. And I kind of respect like yeah. any sort of, you know kind of movement they have there to try and make it better because it's it doesn't seem like it's easy at all they've they've got such an attitude of like um they've got the attitude of uh a small creator that makes like avatar creators in your browser or like something you know like a share you know that you see these like waves of like little like avatar builders or like anime character builders that pop up and and get super popular and shared online and that's almost media molecules like vibe to me is like just mess around like share the stuff that you want to and like it's okay to make mistakes but it's like they package it inside what is an unbelievably technically impressive package that's like well this is maybe too complicated to do these small whimsical things yeah so it's it's yeah yeah, it's a really fascinating mix to me i mean it's interesting Um, as well like um there are a lot of people now using it for previs work and they're actually getting paid from using dreams yeah but it's it's kind of 
there are kind of concerns there, I guess, from other creators outside of that community in, in terms of, I guess, PlayStation, I believe, or Sony um, have the, the right to use your creations in any way they see fit, which I guess yeah. uh, ties to promotion. So if they wanted to make a trailer, I guess, for Dreams, they could use your creations uh, basically because of them being on Dreams. But I, I, I've i spoken to people like um, Martin, uh, Martin Niemelong, I, I believe that's yeah. how you pronounce his name, but he he kind of does a lot of like impressive artwork in there, and he kind of uses it for music videos and previs uh, artwork for films and TV and music videos. And he's one of the I guess people who's part of this early commercial program to sort of see kind of how do you monetize dreams, and yeah. um, it's it's interesting and. I think that's another aspect of it where it's kind of like Media Molecule are this kind of, I guess, twee company in a way. And sure. then, then the considerations are, but it's a game published by Sony who are like like this massive <laughs> like company. So it's kind of butting heads there as well, which is yeah. just really, it's just a bizarre game. That's, that's yeah, a- it, is, it is super bizarre. Um, all right, stepping away from uh, communities for a second uh, to, to wrap up, I you one of my absolute favorite pieces on the website last year uh, was your profile on Norihiko Hubino, who uh, is a composer for uh, Metal Gear Solid series and, and some other stuff. Um, how, how did this story get on your radar? And I don't know, tell me a little bit about how, how this came about. Well, it was, it was pretty much, I guess to to uh kind of it, it kind of came from i guess hearing that prescription uh for sleep the new album was coming out and sure. it, it was kind of seeing that and seeing how kind of music was being used in a way to sort of help people um mm-hmm. and wanting to look further into that and i, I guess like speaking to uh Hibuno, uh it, it, it was it, it was interesting to sort of hear about his career path and like the fact that he kind of did all this other stuff outside of um, games and kind of, I guess, in a way for a while, lost interest in kind of um, scoring these kind of more violent video games that he was kind right. of working with. And um, yeah, and kind of looking at um, kind of how he was using music in a way to sort of, it's kind of like palliative care. So it wasn't, intended to actually cure people because i think that's like the problem that you have when you write those type of pieces to be like you know oh this video game has like cured my depression or something like that it was kind of (laughs) which which are kind of like i mean that's kind of the trap that a lot of writers fall into and i feel like i fell into when i started writing about games um but like um the fact that it's kind of more just comfort and it's like the fact that this comforts someone uh especially people who are ill and and yeah and to kind of give some background i guess because i kind of jumped into that he he basically makes um he's went from kind of primarily composing for games to kind of making these albums that are essentially covers of video games like popular video game themes and turning them into kind of these relaxing kind of lullabies and these kind of relaxing uh these tracks so he's done like celeste and i i believe he's done undertale as well and um yeah and just kind of yeah that's kind of what interested me and what pulled me in but then hearing i guess about 
snake eater, which is kind of <laughs> like in a, like I just remember like the first time I ever loaded up like MGS3 and saw that song and was just like, wow, <laughs> okay, yeah. okay, Kojima. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a bold track. Yeah, I mean he 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 very much like it was funny as well because when we were talking to him he basically was talking about um how how it's kind of like the way he composed it was very sort of like universal it was like people anyone could latch onto the the thing like you know um i give my life not for honor but for you it's like that kind of universal (laughs) kind of feeling but then when we were talking like seconds later we were talking about the tree fog line where it gets really like specific but uh but yeah, it was, it was like amazing chatting to him because he he seems to it, not just like it, the fact that he was like that song was like a massive part of like my childhood growing up like playing uh, sure. MGS three, but the fact that he's doing like these amazing things outside of games to help people. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really really cool profile. It, it kind of uh, hits on the. Uh, really uh the far ends of the spectrum in terms of like working on these you know kind of silly but violent video games um and, and also these kind of thoughtful uh, uh albums that he's been creating to to kind of help you know ease people um it's a really cool profile uh you should definitely go check it out it's one of my favorite pieces on the site um <laughs> and uh yeah it's really good it's really good um, Jack, this has been a super great conversation. Uh, I, uh, you have opened up a lot of communities to me and uh, a lot of our readers that, um, you know, I certainly, uh, I'm not super involved with, but I feel like I know portions of these communities, which I think is really cool. Um, you're doing some of the best reporting, uh, in the industry right now on the stuff. And, uh, yeah, I'm super happy that you've got some stuff on our site, Jack, where can folks find you online? Um, well, Twitter is pretty much the only place that I'm like actually active. Like, uh, that's, uh, at Jack G Yarwood. And, um, I mean, they could follow me on Instagram at the same thing, but I mostly just take pictures of trees (laughs) and like dogs <laughs> that's and, good you know like <laughs> dogs are pretty good yeah i mean i'm a big fan of both of those things um well that's so cool uh <laughs> all right jack have a great rest of your evening and uh yeah hopefully we'll go uh, catch up soon yeah cool have a great day WWE announced this week that they will be moving their WWE Network subscription content over to NBC's Peacock's streaming service in March. The 1.1 million subscribers of the service will be migrated to Peacock, where they'll still be able to access over 17,000 hours of content. Nick Khan, former CAA agent and now WWE as president and chief revenue officer, spearheaded the move, which is reported to be for five years of exclusivity and more than $1 billion over that time. Peacock subscribers with ads pay $4.99 per month, which is half the cost of a WWE Network subscription. WWE Network subscribers will either get their new setup at half the cost or can opt to pay the same amount for Peacock's ad-free premium subscription at $9.99. 
WWE on Peacock still brings the live events WWE Network provides to users at no extra cost, like SummerSlam or WrestleMania. Fastlane, which, which is usually the last major event before WrestleMania in early April, will be the first pay-per-view available on Peacock on March 21st. The free ad-supported version of Peacock will not include WWE content as of this recording. For Peacock, this is a tremendous value add for, the, for a network whose biggest draw so far is The Office, which is now the exclusive platform where you can see one of the world's most popular television shows of all time. For WWE, the benefits are a little less obvious, but I can certainly speculate that Nick Khan poured over the financials of the WWE network since joining in August 2020 and saw a beefy offering that doesn't draw in nearly as many subscribers as it needs to stay solvent as a product. Moving over to Peacock with a 10-figure price tag is probably a good deal. It'll just be interesting to see where WWE content stands after this five-year term is up with Peacock. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Jack Yarwood for stopping by, hanging out, talking about game communities and a lot of other stuff. That was a blast. Uh, if you want to check out all of our wonderful podcasts, you can do so over at podcastnet.work. It's my favorite URL that we own, I think. Um, and yeah, if you want to check us out on uh, Twitter, you can also do so at Fanbyte Media. Um, until next week, y'all take it easy and you're welcome. Thank you.